to a pleasure podcast for more from our sex podcast collective visit pleasurepodcasts.com thanks for tuning in sluts and scholars is a sex positive shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter while we love to give advice and resources please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy Hey slutty scholars, Nicoletta here. Sort of a big announcement, you may have noticed that in the last few weeks I've been hosting solo. That's because from here on out I'm excited to announce that I will be hosting Sluts and Scholars on my own. I think we can all thank Simone for her efforts, energy, and vulnerability and wish her the best of luck in all of her reproductive justice endeavors. I'm really excited to continue this adventure and can't wait to share the rest of this season's guests with you. I look forward to continuing the dialogue around shame-free sexual discovery and exploration. I've got some really amazing things in store for Sluts and Scholars, and I'm excited to grow with you and your support. Now to the episode. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars. My name is Nicoletta, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And this week, I am super excited to invite someone who actually works in my building that I know through the Sexual Health Alliance. Ken Howard is a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, life, career, relationship coach, grad school professor, author, speaker, such a renaissance man. (laughs) Um, He is the founder of GayTherapyLA.com, which is a group private practice based in Los Angeles, and with over 28 years of experience as a gay men's specialist therapist and sex therapist. He's also an adjunct associate professor at the Suzanne, is my, am I saying this right? Suzanne Dwarak Peck School of Social Work at the University of Southern California, which is where he graduated from. He is the author of books including Self-Empowerment, Have the Life You Want, and Positive Outlook, a collected essays on successfully living with HIV today, available on Amazon. He's also the author of the new adult genre fictional novel, The Boy From Yesterday, and hosts the Gay Therapy LA with Ken Howard LCSW podcast. And he currently lives in West Hollywood, California with his husband of 18 years and likes to ride motorcycles. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that's me. That's my entire biography right there. (laughs) And you're always usually wearing like something good that's leather. (laughs) Yeah, I try and do something. Work, I'm in my my dress shirt and dress slacks drag but outside it's like okay i gotta have something you know it's like something borrowed something blue and i leave the house it's like okay something leather-ish and something that's- leather <laughs> perfect <laughs> i i think you and i know why it's important to have like a specialization for like quote-unquote gay therapy mm-hmm. but maybe some of our listeners don't and i would love to hear from your perspective like why you think it's important to like have this this niche practice and why like other general therapists like might not get it. I think it's our best, most easy frame of reference is just look at medicine. You know, it's like everybody knows what a cardiologist is, a doctor for the heart, and everybody knows a psychiatrist, a MD for uh, psychiatric and neurological issues. Everybody knows what a gynecologist is or proctologist. You know, and and they do that because they have to have a specialization because when something really goes wrong. A general practitioner might not have the depth and the training and just the detail that a specialist would who's doing, you know, ear, nose, and throat all day, every day. And it's kind of the same thing with this. I think that, um, you know, in a pinch, if you had to see a GP about something, 
they could probably treat you pretty well because after all they're a physician but um, a specialist might say mm, okay but you forgot about this and this <laughs> you know so it's a specificity of the experience especially when you know there's kind of a depth and a length and a breadth of the experience within that um, because when we talk about okay I'm a spe I'm you know an LGBT affirmative therapist but you know that's really that's not one community people say oh the LGBT community and that's a bit of a catch all what it really means is that it's at least four if not six you know it's it's lesbians gay men bisexual women bisexual men asexual men asexual women trans men and women um which some people argue shouldn't even be included in that acronym because it's a gender identity and not an orientation yeah exactly and i think um my best explanation of that was was in part of the curriculum of the lgbt course that i taught for graduate social work students and it was just about sexual minorities which can include gender and sexual orientation and and even intersex you and i also know that like and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but most therapists only get one class, if at all, on human sexuality. Yeah. And so to be able to cover like the breadth of that in one class is already limited. And then to be able to focus on like just gay men's populations and culture, mm -hmm. there's no way you can cover all of that right. in and like just one isn't class. Time. Yeah, there just isn't time. So, you know, I think that's true with a lot of different kinds of therapy. I mean, I think sex therapy needs its own attention, like continuing education. I think uh, certain kinds of trauma therapy needs a certain depth. I don't know. There's so much psychotherapists have to be, you know, reasonably expected to be competent in that specialization just helps. It's almost like not only inclusion, but you're also deciding what not to include like if i get a call from somebody asking for help with a you know 14 year old girl with an eating disorder i would probably prefer help for that you know um but uh yeah if like if you're trying to help everyone you might end up helping no one yes exactly jack of all trades master of none kind of thing and then there's a lot of areas of overlap so i you know i might work with you know, a 35-year-old gay man with erectile dysfunction, but then if a 35-year-old straight man calls me and says, um, can you help me with that? I'll be like, yeah, we've just, you know, I just helped the other guy this morning. So, you know, there's, there's overlap, especially, I think, with overall men's psychology. I think being a gay men's specialist also includes a lot of men's psychology issues about um, gender expectations and stereotypes. You know, we tend to think of gender oppression as being about women, and it is, but, you know, part of the problem of sexism is that it hurts both and all sexes. Say more about that. Well, I think it's, um, you know, as a gay man, um, you know, I had gender nonconforming behavior, not because I was trans, but because I was gay. You know, I really caught a lot of hell from my father and my mother, and to some, to some degree my sister, although my sister's a saint, she's an animal rights activist, um, Jill Howard Church, there's a plug. Um, but uh, <laughs> She can't say you didn't say anything nice now. Exactly, exactly. No, she's, she's absolutely amazing. But there was a lot of pressure in my family to be a sports enthusiast and to be a sports fan. I grew up in D.C., and if you don't you know, praise the Washington Redskins once a day. I think they, they give you a ticket or something. Yeah, so many <laughs> reasons that name is problematic anyway. But yes, yeah. sports. So, you know, so I very much identify as a cisgender 
male, with no disrespect to people who don't. But I, I was made to feel like less of a man because I was gay or less of a man because I wasn't an athlete at that time, although now I spend a lot of time in the gym. But, um, you know, it's... It, Gender nonconforming behavior can apply to both and all sexes, and that's why that you know it's it's a real problem. So, what are some other common things that you see for folks that come to your practice, or I, would, I guess I would say like for gay male populations or couples? I think um, it's it's such a diversity. One of the reasons why you know I haven't been bored with focusing on gay men for 28 years people are like aren't you sick of them yet and no because there's so much diversity in age and presenting issue in culture um you know there's so much diver- that the g is the one thing they have in common and then beyond that the sky's the limit on who these guys are and have been um but I think there's certain common denominators. I think the role of minority stress, um, especially around self-esteem. Um, you know, if, if when I work with couples, I think it all boils down to communication. When I work with individuals, I think it all boils down to self-esteem, and the ways that their self-esteem has been impugned by. We talk about systemic racism. I think there's systemic homophobia, and the worst of it is probably the most subtle forms of it. And so for people who don't know, can you explain a little bit about minority stress? Well, I think there's different definitions, but it's it's basically the chronic stress of being part of a minority group that is oppressed in all kinds of ways, interpersonally, within the family, within society, within our institutions, kind of everywhere you go, kind of like, um, you know, gender oppression. You know, I was at a doctor's office last week for the first time filling out the patient intake form, you know, check a box, male or female. And whenever I see that, you know, I will draw in a box that says MTF and another box that says FTM and another box that says non-binary. And I will hand it back to them and I say, your form is incomplete. I think you need to add a few things. You're missing something. Good for you. And the receptionist kind of look at me like, what? But it's a it's an opportunity because I don't know how many people in the course of a week fill out those forms and draw in little boxes, but you know what? Or don't and don't say anything and then feel like shit. Exactly. Which yeah, which is probably even more common. So it's kind of like I don't miss an opportunity to kind of push my agenda as as both a clinician and then, you know, always with a bit of an activist in me. Do you think that's an important quality of being of specializing in gay therapy is having a component of activism? Yes, and like social definitely. Because I kind of my kind of I can't speak French, but the 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 French phrase um, raison d'être, yeah, basically reason for being or reason for living or point. Gosh, a listener's going to be like, "You're getting that wrong." But <laughs> raison d'être. Yes, exactly. Do you know? Do you know that? Actually, yes. Oh, okay. I took French in high school. What did you? Do you know, I can't say that I'm saying it properly. Uh, did you know the literal translation? The, uh, yeah, reason to be, reason of being. Oh, okay, cool. Thank you. I think, um, I think we got it. <laughs> yeah, but you see, but that we're going to get hate mail. I was watch. moved in, <laughs> in, in you know, because I kind of cut my eye teeth at the height of the AIDS crisis because I was originally basically raised to be in show business because my great aunt had been an actress in Broadway and films. She made 110 films. Um, and, you know, my, my, not so much my parents, but my grandparents had been in music and theater and, and even my great grandparents. And 
you know, at a certain point in L.A. as a young actor, being sexually harassed, I might add, that's another story. But um, eventually I, I looked at what was going on in the AIDS crisis and I said, I can't sit back and do bubblegum commercials. I just, I can't do that. I have to be a part of this. I felt like a, a young guy might have felt... Um, you know, in World War II, of course, they were drafted, but, you know, that some volunteered and said, you know, I can't sit by and let this menace happen without doing something about it. And that's how I felt. And then I was too old and not good enough in math to go to medical school. It would have taken too long. So I looked at HIV mental health. And then around that time, I was diagnosed myself with HIV. I was 26 in 1990. And uh, I worried that I wouldn't live through a four-year doctoral program. So I looked for a two-year program and found the MSW program at USC, where I now teach, and um, and went that direction and said, okay, I want to focus on the psychosocial aspects of HIV and AIDS and to fight against the stigma and the oppression of these very sick, oftentimes, not always very sick, but certainly threatened guys who are either actually sick or at risk of being sick and dying. And I'm going to support their time left, and I'm going to fight back not only about the ravages of a disease as a virus, but also the social stigma that is around it. So how was it to step into that role of, like, I want to fight for folks who are struggling with this while you yourself were struggling with this at a time where we don't have the medications that we have today? Well, part of it was I felt like it was two-tiered, you know. I've always been very lucky in being very healthy. You know, I never had a truly opportunistic infection, although I did have a related cancer. I did I both of my hips are fake. I've had hip replacement from a vascular necrosis of the bones, which is rare, but it, not that rare, but it happens. And is that due to, to medication or other stuff? Or in just... some ways, yeah. It's it's kind of several things. It's probably bone density loss. It was In my case, it might have been uh, like a blood coagulation issue about the blood feeding the femoral head supply and then the bone. It causes necrosis. And... Um, which is like death of tissue. Yeah, and the bone, and in the, on the X-ray, it's just this nice round bone. The head of the femur starts to crumble and not be round anymore, and then they replace it with one that's titanium, and it's very Tin Man, and it's very you know <laughs> space age and stuff. Um, and I don't even feel them anymore. But you know that was a complication. I had a lot of lipodystrophy, a lot of lipoatrophy. You know, there's a lot of plastic in my face and in my butt. Um, so, you know, and of course, you know, millions and millions of pills across, you know, um, almost 30 years. So, you know, but still all through that time, I worked full time. And then I worked with people who were much more impacted. So I was kind of, yeah, I'm living with this, but I'm helping people who are living with it, who are having many more struggles. So I was kind of a consumer and a provider at the same time. Of I don't know if you know from a medical perspective, but what happens to where it affects some folks differently? Is it just because we all have different you know, genes and genetics? Sometimes and strain. Like, um, you know, some of this, you know, all of these things, I think, have been clarified a lot of different ways medically. But um, there's kind of a theory that some strains of HIV are more virulent than others. And 
mine was tested with something called replication capacity, you know, the ability of the virus to replicate itself. It's like some viruses are like Octomom and they have lots and lots of <laughs> progeny, you know, and, uh, you know, and some aren't. And um, the, uh, <laughs> my replication capacity test was very low. I had a very weakened virus and then it had a lot of mutations. So I was just plain lucky. Whereas, you know, some people that lasted only a few months from diagnosis to death probably had a virus with a higher replication capacity. And that's one of the variables in, of the many about people who were diagnosed earlier and yet lived just long enough to see the advent of protease inhibitors in about 1995 or 96, get on them. And then some of these guys, and women too, you know, came back from the brink of death. You know, I saw, I was in the gay men's chorus of LA at the time, and we lost people gradually. They would get thinner and thinner and sicker and sicker looking. And then they would pass away and we would sing at a memorial. And there, I remember there was one guy who was getting thinner and thinner. And I thought, oh boy, we're going to lose so-and-so soon. And then every week on Monday nights at rehearsal, he would be back. And I'm like, how is he still here? <laughs> and then uh, we were glad he was, but we noticed okay, what's different about him? And then he just kept coming back. And then we just gradually started to notice we're not seeing at memorials anymore. And then there was one night at rehearsal when, at the, the time, John Bailey, the artistic director, said, guys, I just want to start rehearsal tonight with a little bit of good news. Do you realize that tonight marks one year since we have lost somebody in this chorus to AIDS? And, you know, got a big ovation oh, and you're stuff. you're going to make me cry over here, Ken. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that was about 97 or so, um, because I left in 98. And, um, you know, and we just got, yeah. So, you know, it was, that was a very life example way of, of realizing that all of the dying to that magnitude was slowing down or stopping. And then, of course, there have been underserved communities and underserved countries, so we don't want to forget about them. But, um, you know, mainstream American cities, you know, with combination therapy, these folks were surviving, you know, including me. I think I would have been long gone without... It's, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the novel that I did, The Boy from Yesterday, which is a, a fictional story about a time traveler. But it, it came from... By saying to my husband one day, um, I saw on the news a thing about anti-vaxxers, and I got mad, and I said, you know what, these people should be happy that we have medicines today that would have killed our loved ones a century ago. And then the idea popped in my head and said, yeah, what if? And so I wrote a story about a time traveler who has a sick friend, and he comes to the future and tries to bring antibiotics back to the past to save his friend. And falls in it's a sort of straight guy it's a, he falls in love with a girl in the present day who turns out to be the progeny of his friend in the past <laughs> so it's all a big kind of circular timetable but the idea was with some drama yeah exactly with some drama thrown in and uh lots of drama thrown in. and it was about my just sending a love letter to the idea that medicine saves lives and yes you know we have villains and the farmer world and the for-profit medical world, and that is a big social and political problem. But we also have to remember there's better living through chemistry, 
you know, that we have medications today that would have killed our loved ones not only a century ago, we have medications today that would have killed our loved ones five years ago that they would survive today, chemotherapy and things like that. And you use the word survivor. And, and on the podcast, I think we've talked a lot about that in the context of like survivorhood of sexual assault. Yeah. But here I'm thinking of it as survivor's guilt. And, yeah. you know, what, what has that been like to outlive some of your friends or to maybe work with clients who are at an age where maybe many other friends haven't made it? this far? Well, I think, you know, my best friend that I grew up with died in uh, actually 1998, and he had had access to meds, but he was in a cult, and his cult convinced him to stop taking his meds and just drink their filtered water and take their vitamins instead, and unfortunately, that was a very fatal decision, and, you know, I'm still bitter about cults that to this day because of that. That's a very... Yeah, how could you not be angry? ...bad thing to do. But, you know, he was the closest person to me that died before it stopped. There were others, and it was like a train approaching on a tracks, you know, more and more and more. At first, it was people I barely knew, then more than I knew closer, and then him. And then you thought at some points yourself. Right. It was like, it was like standing in front of a cowcatcher on a train, you know, in front of a locomotive, and it just kind of stopped. And... You know, I think, you know, I know that survivor's guilt can be a thing. It's been discussed in certain gay forums. I think we have to be careful with that clinically because sometimes I think the pain and grief of survivor's guilt that they're calling it, I think, is actually a clinical depression. I think we have to do some good old-fashioned clinical differential diagnosis when we see that. And also, you know, addressing the existential crisis. I've worked with a lot of guys about existential issues. What is the purpose and meaning and joy of your life? Oh, gosh, what's the answer? I've <laughs> been trying to figure well, it out. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Broadway show queen. Um, I totally admit I've written a musical um, that's, that's kind of a, a new version of the Pygmalion story about gay men about an obese guy who maybe becomes... Maybe at the end you'll, you'll sing a little for us? <laughs> well, maybe, and there's this, actually a song about AIDS in it that's on SoundCloud, and people want to find that called The Time We Learned What Love Was. And uh, when an older character, an older gay man sings to a younger gay man about what was that time like, because he was too young to have lived through it. And um, a little bit of survivor guilt there, and, and it beca does become existential. You know, why am I here when my buddy's gone? or my loved one, or my family member. But, you know, we said that in World War II, we said that in World War I, we said that in the Civil War, any time, or the Holocaust, you know, any time we've survived something where lots of other people have died, or even just one, you know, even just something like an illness, or an accident, or violent crime, it can cause an existential crisis. Why am I here when they're not? What do, how do I deserve to live and they deserve to die? And it's like, well, I don't think it works like that. You know, we're talking about a virus, and you know, viruses aren't choosing, hey, I'm going to knock you out and I'm going to preserve this one. But it does, it has given me a sense of purpose about wanting to impact as many people positively as I possibly can. I want to entertain them when I write something creative, and I certainly want to support them clinically. You know, I, I put at the end of... Um, self-empowerment have the life you want my book that the epilogue of that book is the story about the sleeping beauty story which is you know the the fairies give the baby princess the gift the gift of beauty or the gift of laughter and the third fairy 
uh, hides when is this we, like OG Sleeping Beauty story? Kind of, you know, if, we, if I know we, there's like Disney Sleeping Beauty and then there's like the really <laughs> rapey like original Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, and it gets if we've seen Maleficent, you know, the, the evil fairy comes and, and gives her a curse and says, "Well, you know, to heck with all of you for not inviting me," and you know, talk about FOMO, and um, <laughs> you know, she says, "Well, she'll prick her finger on you a should spindle." Should do a blog about that if you haven't yet. I, like yeah, mental I, health in Disney movies. <laughs> mental, I know because oh boy, there's a lot there. The sexism in Disney movies. <laughs> you know, you're nothing without a prince. You know, you're nothing without a man. Uh, such a horrible message, but. Uh, I enjoy Disney movies. I love Disney musicals. But from a male feminist standpoint, I don't like that idea of you're nothing without a man. I think yeah. that that ticks off a lot of women and it, it sends the wrong message socially. It's also very heterosexist. But um, but the third fairy comes out from behind and says, it says, I can't remove the curse. I'm not powerful enough, but I can do what I can. The princess won't prick her finger and die. She'll fall asleep until she's awakened by true love's kiss. And that's been my motivation as a therapist. We can't remove the curse of sexual assault, of clinical depression, of OCD, of trauma, of PTSD, of you name a disorder. The big thick DSMs full of a list of disorders. But we can help mitigate them. We can take somebody who's been traumatized and help them find their path to healing. Metaphorical kiss of true love. We don't it, kiss our clients. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, um, we use the powers that we have to mitigate the, the evils that are thrown at us by oftentimes very selfish, very self-indulgent, very disturbed people you know the thing what goes wrong with somebody that they are violent what goes wrong with somebody that they're murderous or abusive and you know well stuff happens you know <laughs> it's, that's part of it yeah and uh, yeah we get to see both sides of like how someone ends up being doing fucked up things yeah um, and how someone ends up being victimized yeah and there's a lot of that i mean a lot of you know i work with a lot of gay men but i also work with a lot of trauma survivors because you know, the idea of things that happen to men that we usually think of as happening to women, like sexual assault or sexual abuse or workplace bullying. That's one of my big interests. In my history, I was pretty severely workplace bullied twice, and people think that that can't happen. It's coming out now a little bit with with uh, claims about Senator Amy Klobuchar being a, a workplace bully and workplace violence, and people think women aren't capable of that. And now some discounts from my sponsors, My Girl Fund and Uberlube. Remember, the more you support the sponsors, the more you support the podcast. Right now, you can join My Girl Fund for free. And for a limited time, you can become a lifetime premium member for less than $5 when you visit mygirlfund.com slash S&S. That means you can get discounted credits and bonus interaction features for life when you go to mygirlfund.com slash S&S. And while you're at it, buy some lube from one of my personal faves, Uber Lube. Uber Lube is offering listeners a special 10% off and free shipping when you use my code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use code S-A-N-D-S at U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com. 
Now, a little more about My Girl Fund and Uberlube. My Girl Fund allows its female members to control their exposure. They connect with who they want to connect with, control how they want to interact, and decide what they charge for those interactions. It's a safe, private, and discreet adult community. On My Girl Fund, you can meet, message, share photos and videos, and cam with women in private. It's a great community of sexy, friendly women to connect with that are relatable and want to hang out and connect with you on an erotically intimate level. There are no set prices or interactions and content. It's all negotiated one-on-one. Again, you can join mygirlfund.com for free, and for a limited time, you can become a lifetime premium member for less than five bucks when you visit mygirlfund.com slash S&S. Uberlube, one of my faves, is a luxurious high-grade silicone lubricant made from simple body-friendly ingredients. It's just silicone with a little vitamin E for some extra moisture. I also use it in my hair for my little frizzies, and you can use it for chafing like in between your thighs, for massage, and more. I always have a little bottle on my nightstand, one in the shower, and a little vial in my purse for on-the-go fun. Remember, lube is your best friend, and this friend has no parabens, preservatives, or petrochemicals, and it doesn't stain your clothes or bedding. Just use the code S&S at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping when you use the code S-A-N-D-S at U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com. Now, back to the episode. What are what are some potential like in-group bullying mechanisms that you see within like the gay community in which we live? Well, like, I guess I'm thinking a lot about like. There's a lot of that. I had a. Well, we're in West Hollywood, so I'm thinking a lot about like people that I've seen that have felt like, well, they don't fit in because they don't go to the gym all the time, or because they're not fit, or because yeah, I don't know, lot, lots of different factors. It's all the isms, you know, the body fascism, the racism. You know, I think West Hollywood and some of the other, you know, gay meccas really need to do some self reflection about how racist they can be. If you talk to a you know, I was going to say young, but but of any age, African American gay man, an Asian gay man, uh, the intersection of many minority yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, and you know, to my mind, living in West Hollywood for a long time, it's been a little bit too white. If you look at a bar and a club, you know, African American men, Latino men are underrepresented for their population in the Greater Los Angeles area, and I think that that's a problem because, you know the gay community really should be about especially appreciating diversity, not just diversity of sexual orientation or gender, but all diversity, including ethnicity and body type and income level. That's a huge one that no one talks about. Um, And, you know, challenging ourselves to be more compassionate and more accepting. There's a theory that that problem is fueling some of the recent rash of gay male suicides which is it's happening too often to be ignored. Even one shouldn't be ignored, but um, it's really been kind of epidemic and we need to kind of say, okay, we've got to be better about this. Yeah. So what are the, some of the pressures that would lead to something like that? I mean, one, there's, you're already dealing with a certain level of minority stress, maybe the intersection of it, body pressures, family stress, what what else? I think appearance. You know, I have on gaytherapyla.com a couple months ago I wrote a blog called Appearance Privilege, you know, what it is and what to do about it. And I really explore that idea of, you know, we all know about male privilege, you know, we know about white privilege. We know about class privilege, but there's another one that a number of guys I've worked with have talked about about what if you are not 
quote unquote traditionally handsome. Now, what is mm. beauty? Is that you know that Helena Rubinstein or Estee Lauder can <laughs> talk about that? Some, what is beauty? Um, but it is kind of a thing. I've, I've worked with one guy in particular who um, had a best friend, but the the best friend was particularly traditionally good looking, you know, in all these ways about high cheekbones and chin and this kind of thing. And he showed me pictures and I was like, yeah, okay, he looks like he came out of a magazine or something. But the guy I worked with, I think, was very cute in his own way. But he was very frustrated by watching how much his friend under the same circumstances had privilege, working at the same place and seeing the privileges with the management. Or um, just having opportunities that, given the same age and and same racial background and the same uh, identity as gay men, but the one who was pretty got a lot of goodies for it. So, what do you say to the like non stereotypically handsome person? Like, maybe they know it, you know it, you know that there's this like systemic issue. Well, I think it's like any other kind of systemic issue you know we don't as one of my own therapists said to me years ago don't make something about them mean something about you you know we don't want to internalize their homophobia and say okay they say we're bad for being gay okay therefore i must be bad or internalize racism or when i work with women internalize sexism or internalize xenophobia or you know all of the isms internalize anti-semitism when i work with jewish guys um there's a lot of those, and we kind of have to say, you know, if you want to deliver your ism to my door, refuse the package. You know, sorry, we're all stocked up here. You know, take what's that line from Jack Nicholson movie? See, a listener's going to know this, but, you know, sell crazy somewhere else. We're all stocked up here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just kind of say, you know, it is not, you know, my problem for looking a different way or for being a minority of some kind it's their problem for indulging in the tyranny of the majority how have you seen things change around body image stuff with dating apps and more people being on those and and the hookup culture i think some of it reminds me a little bit about fetish about kind of there's something for everyone you know, some people would kind of say, ew, I don't want to go out with him. He's too fat. Other people would say, oh, look, isn't he cute? He's a big bear, a big cuddly bear. Yeah, um, how, what do you, how do you feel about, like, titles for different looks of people in the community? Because it seems like some people really like that and embody that, and they're like, I'm a proud bear, I'm a proud twink, but uh-huh. other people could say that it is, like, racist. Because some people are okay being fetishized, and other people don't like being fetishized and feel like that's all they're seen as. Yeah. Especially, that comes up a lot when I work with gay Asian men, because gay Asian men are either put on a pedestal as the ideal, as, as, the, as the male geisha, you know. Like the, the ideal bottom. Yeah, yeah. And, or they're denigrated, no fats, no fems, no Asians, you know. And it's just, you know, one guy in particular I'm thinking of, you know, just the hurt. The thing that bothers me about all these things is that, you know, these isms are not just ideas. They actually hurt real people with real feelings. And that's just not okay in a civilized society. You know, I'm not actually Christian. I'm kind of none of the above when it comes to spirituality, although I work with people on affirming whatever their spirituality is. But I do kind of believe in 
one of the good Christian tenets that was taught years ago about we have to challenge ourselves to be compassionate when we don't want to be. When we want to be grouching, I don't like that. Um, we kind of say, yeah, but if we challenge ourselves to be more compassionate, sometimes we find that we are. You know, if we challenge ourselves to have patience, and I've helped you know some of my more ambivalent or even anti-gay relatives to come around in that way. If kind of say, you know, why do they have to you know <laughs> dress up in leather? Why do they have to dress up in drag? It's like I don't know why. Why are you wearing that blouse or that shirt? Well, it's pretty. I thought I liked it. It feel good. I feel good wearing it. Uh huh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> And bringing it kind of around to like the HIV discussion we were having before, what role do you see that playing in culture now? Because now we know that like, um, you know, there are sustainable ways to live for a long time and be undetectable. And there are medications to take to prevent yourself from contracting HIV and, and, you know, um, I think it's just the it's not a death the, the miraculous, wonderful power of the nerd. You know, I just I owe my life to you know little nerdy guys or women in lab coats somewhere with the microscope saying, "Hmm, I think we can make a drug out of this." Oh, look, this works well in a test tube. And you yeah. know, they're the ones that were good at chemistry when I wasn't. And you know, I owe my life to these people. You know, I'm joking when I say nerdy, but you know, people who advance medical technology you know medical technology gives me a life i can be a son to my mother i can be a brother to my sister i can be a husband to my husband i can be a friend to my friend i can be a therapist to my patients and so on i can do all of those things because a bunch of people that we write off as being nerds you know develop compounds that stop a virus from killing me there is no more noble profession i think than to save someone's life. Because my friend, whenever she drinks, she toasts with lahayim, the, the the Hebrew word for to life, the toast. She said, I always toast with lahayim because my rabbi said, when you toast to lahayim to life, that's everything. Life is everything. So we toast to everything, lahayim. <laughs> Do you think folks are being less careful now because there's so much more like prevention and... I don't think so much less careful. I think what it means is that when we get into gay men's sexuality, you know, before condomless sex was considered unsafe because it might transmit HIV, now that we know either on combination therapy known as TASP, treatment as prevention, or with PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, I mean, these long terms for, you know, it's like, what the heck is prophylaxis? Well, it's a fancy word for for prevention. And if you want to know more about that, go back to our episode uh, from way back when called HIV Princess. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, between TASP and PrEP, you know, condomless sex is no longer considered unsafe sex. It does mean that, you know, you need to be regularly screened for things like syphilis because, you know, syphilis can be a public health problem. And syphilis is, you know, it's understatement, but it's it's a bad thing if it's not treated. Um but it just means that you know you get screened and tested and treated when you need to for STDs and um, and then for some people using condoms they're they're safer with that because they're like well it, it uh, you know it can help prevent syphilis and some other things but a lot of guys aren't and they it's under the umbrella of different paths towards sexual health 
You know, I think as sex therapists, we're always looking at how can we foster the idea of sexual self-care and embracing what is sexual health for everybody. You well, know? I think of that to not just include the physical, but the emotional, the cultural, the community. Absolutely, um, yeah. Now that we're at a time where folks can be undetectable, mm-hmm. have you ever had to navigate with someone like if and when and how do they disclose in dating if they're undetectable yeah um i think you know working with gay men some guys do some guys don't but it's very controversial i mean because because i think um and this could be any STI. you know know? i've always taken issue with a lot of different public health things about oh know your partner what do you want to know about them? They're Sagittarius and their Social Security and number ends up ends in five two one six. That doesn't stop a, vi- a virus. Is very dumb. A, a virus doesn't know, you know, your Social Security number. It doesn't know, you know, that you're a Capricorn. It doesn't know that you speak fluent Swahili. You know, it's about. It always was about preventing the mechanics of how a virus is transmitted in HIV, and so. You know, back in the day, if you were using condoms for HIV prevention, honey, you could go to the bathhouse and stay all night and, you know, take it from 50 different guys, and that virus is not going to pass. But, you know, you can go out on a nice little dinner date in a suit and tie and have sex with one guy and have unprotected sex and convert to HIV. Now, which one's the slut? You know, it's it's it gets into, like, a lot of that slut-shaming stuff and all that. And... You know, whether it's a condom as a barrier or whether it's PrEP as a barrier, it's this idea of saying the buck stops here. You know, if a virus is living with one person as the host, it doesn't get transmitted. And then if that transmission is prevented, happy day. Now, whether that's because the person's on treatment and on on task and they can't transmit because their viral load is undetectable, or whether the person's on PrEP and the virus can't take hold because drug is in their bloodstream, um, or because uh, one person's positive but their semen never travels anywhere because it's contained in a condom. Um, all of those things, you know, will prevent, just like pregnancy prevention, you know, you prevent sperm into egg and you don't have a deal (laughs) i think it's tough um i don't know if you've had this experience but when i'm working with clients whether it's any kind of disclosure around sti or some other kind of you know status or thing that they'd like to share with a partner i think i want to empower folks to share only what they feel comfortable and also like honor and understand the shame and the stigma and the reasons why they might not say something as opposed to like making a judgment of like that's really wrong that you didn't tell someone that you're you know hiv positive and there's also this sort of like flip side of it where i want to help people have like you know safer sex communications and be able to talk openly so it's a sort of a I don't know, it's a lot to hold space for when you're having those dialogues with a client. Yeah, and the, and historically, you know, there's been a lot of HIV stigma about, you know, before PrEP, you know, there yeah. was a lot of stuff around. Well, a lot of fear. Well, if we don't talk about it, we can have condomless sex because, you know, if it's not, if we don't talk about it, then the virus isn't there. <laughs> Whereas, you know, somebody right. said, oh, by that the works. way, I'm, I'm positive and I'm a top, but I wear condoms. It's like, be like yeah, I'm still not sleeping with you. And it's kind of like, but I just said I wear condoms. We would be having safe sex. What's the big deal? It's like, yeah, no, I still don't, you know. It, it, there are people, 
you know, who didn't want to be in the same room with someone with HIV, and yet yeah. HIV isn't transmitted, you know, through the air like coronavirus is. Um, oh, you know, uh, <laughs> giving me anxiety over here. <laughs> you know, uh, or the common cold, or you know, but some... there's it's all fear. You know, a lot of fear. Right. Yeah, and it's also stigma because. You know, not only was it the fear of getting sick or the fear of dying, but it was also fear of being one of those people, you know. Um, you know, there was a joke early on, when a joke, you know, in AIDS, kind of a dark humor about uh, when it was affecting gay men and Haitians. And the joke was, you know, what's the worst part of having AIDS? And the answer was trying to convince your parents you're Haitian. And, I mean, it was just, you know, these things that could because... You know, and of course, you know, with Haitians, you know, these were black people and or gays or, you know, they associated with the other or the foreign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was just so much hysteria around a disease that could make you either very sick or kill you or both being associated with out groups, people right. of color, immigrants, gays, right. uh, you know. Um, and And so there was this you know, so much stigma around not only the threat of disease and death, but also who it was coming from. You know, if I'm going to get a dead new disease and die, it's going to be from some, you know, rich, white, cisgender, male, Christian, Protestant. It's not going to be from one of those people. <laughs> people actually thought things like that on a wide scale. I not still think some yeah, people still not think just one like or that. two. We're talking about millions of people around the world. Uh, in Africa, in Western countries, all over the place. You know, they didn't want Brian White, the little HIV-positive boy, to even go to school. Oh, what if he falls down and cuts himself at the same time that my child falls down and cuts himself, and then they rub wounds together and the virus transmit? Okay, that's not a thing. Or, you know, with Magic Johnson, you know, as the HIV basketball player, what if the basketball hits him in the nose and he has a nosebleed and somebody touches the, their the basketball that has blood on it, and then they touch their own nose, and then it, it you know, people went hysterical about yeah. that. And, you know, I understand that it's normal to be afraid of things that can hurt you. If you're walking down the street and a tiger jumps out and growls, okay, I would probably walk in the other direction. But, you know, but there was a fear out of proportion to the stimulus. Out of, based out of misconceptions. Yeah, and that's what a lot of anxiety is, is a, a fear that is out of proportion to the threat of the stimulus, like airplanes or even non-poisonous snakes or elevators. And, yeah. You know. I mean, this is a sort of unrelated question, but I just kind of want to bring it around to, you know, the fact that we are living in a time where it's not a death sentence and there, you know, lots of room and opportunity for fun, yeah. uh, fun experiences too. Absolutely. Um, and it doesn't have to like end your life or your romance or your sex or your dating or anything else. And I was at dinner with some friends last night, some of whom were gay men, some of whom were, you know, identified as queer, some of whom identified as hetero and all along the spectrum. And one of the, um, one of the gay identifying men that we were with said that he's noticed in young gay men's culture and like hookup app culture now that there's much more of a comfort in fucking first and uh then as opposed to getting dinner first because there's <laughs> yeah. more vulnerability in having dinner with someone oh. than fucking them yeah see the interpersonal and i'm curious what you what you think the about fear that of intimacy well you know yeah. they sometimes joke you know that in the gay community having sex is the gay handshake you know i think well that, you can learn a lot about somebody from having sex <laughs> exactly and exa and i think you know there's so much 
you know, you and I are well versed in in just being sensitive to how much stigma there is around sexuality, particularly right. women's sexuality, but also HIV positive people's sexuality. Oh, they shouldn't be having sex anyway. You know, you hear about that, or we used to certainly. Um, and you know, it's like, well, if people want to have sex before they have dinner, okay. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that because you're talking about two consenting adults making a decision to have dinner together. I, I always encourage people yeah. to have sex before eating together, I mean, for any kind of partners, because if you're full, I usually don't feel like having sex. Yeah, well, I, I know, just kind of timing, you know? <laughs> yeah, of, just the logistics of it. Exactly, exactly. And plus, I think, you know, sex can mean so many different things. I, You know, I think that there's sport effing, and then there's uh, making love, and then there's um, so many euphemisms for sex that have different meanings. You know, I, I heard this joke that the Eskimos have like 23 different words for snow. Because they're like, what are we talking about? Wet snow, new snow, dry snow? What are we talking about? And we just have the one because we don't generally see that much of it, especially in L.A. Um, so it's this idea that we need more words for sex <laughs> because of what it means. Because it could mean so many things. Yeah. I mean, and it can mean, hi, how are you? <laughs> you, know, you know, oh, I'm fine. You know, there you go. I'm so sad because we're running out of time, and I would love to ha like have you back another time to oh, talk. I have like fun. so many more things I want to talk about. <laughs> that would be um, fun. <laughs> is there anything you want to have listeners know about where they can follow you, books, blogs, podcast stuff? Oh, just good old-fashioned plugs? Well, let's see. I mean, if you would like to hear the novel about the little time traveler guy, um, it's called The Boy from Yesterday, and it's available on podcast for free. We have the first uh, 13 chapters recorded, read by me, with dramatic reading. Um, oh, gosh, I and, uh, with, with more chapters to come, um, it's, it's going to be quite a serial. Uh, the other podcast, the real stuff, the clinical stuff, uh, Gay Therapy LA with Ken Are Howard you trying to say time travel is not real? Uh, well, that's, oh boy, I'm going to get in letters on that. Um, <laughs> well, that's part, I'm all about conspiracy part theories of the over novel. One, that comes up in the novel of, you know, what do people do when they learn that magic is real? Mm. What, what would that mean for somebody emotionally? You know, if everything you knew about your world became different. That's one of the, the many lessons embedded in an Hopefully entertaining story. but uh, And then, of course, the website. I've got over 300 blog articles on all kinds of sex and relationships and communication and finances and time management and career issues, all on GayTherapyLA.com. If you go get GayTherapyLA.com to the blog tab and then the search box and then just search on... Golden Girls, you will find an article. Uh, Sounds so. like we need to have a future episode just about the Golden Girls. <laughs> just on the Golden Girls itself. There's at least two blog I like queer theory it. in musicals and Absolutely. shows. Absolutely. And there's one about uh, lessons we can learn from the gay divas, from Cher and Dolly and Liza and all those. I'm a certain age. If I did it today, I'd have to include like Britney and <laughs> people like that. Amazing, amazing. Thank you so much for joining. This Thank is you. The, it's great you've to made be me here. like laugh, like cry, tear up a little bit, also feel like <laughs> sadness and then frustration that we're finishing. But I, I want to 
thank you so much for joining me. Um, if you want to follow what I'm doing at Sluts and Scholars, I'm on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and you can email me with your questions and wonderings and suggestions at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. And if you have a moment, always appreciate a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you have some extra money lying around, feel free to follow on Patreon um, at patreon.com slash slutsandscholars. Thank you.